Good morning. How y'all doing? Crazy week. At least it was for us. I hope that you uh, are glad to have made it this far. By God's grace, you're here this morning, and uh, we get to open up the Word of God together. So let's do that. Um, we'll get into that in just a moment. Um, we have a several different variety of texts we're going to look at together, but we're still on the same subject. We're talking about the road to glory. And uh, from the day you came to Christ, uh, you were set on a path and on a journey that will take the rest of your lifetime. So it's the trip of a lifetime, literally, and uh, it culminates in glory. So uh, Pastor preached a great message this morning about that, and uh, he's going to talk about glory as well. So i got to get out of his way, because we're going to be in Romans 6 for some of this, and he's closely on our heels. So we're going to be in a little bit of Romans 6 today, along with some other things. But I trust you've had a good week. Uh, Brother Govinda, did you say that you're running 250 miles? Is that what you said? 240 miles. 240 miles. What, what are you running from, man? I don't know what you're running from. <laughs> Is Jamuna being good to you? I mean, <laughs> you're running from... I don't understand it. Uh, but it's very inspiring. I will tell you that. I wish that I could run 250 inches. Um, that's just amazing. Brother, it's crazy. Anyway, why don't you begin with a word of prayer with me this morning, and we'll start right away here into our, into our lesson. How do I change? I'm wondering uh, if you ever asked that question of yourself. How do I change? You get so sick and tired of your sin and being around that, going around that bush one more time with the sin and just saying, how in the world do I get any victory here? How do I change? And uh, so we're going to ask the Lord's help for that. Lord, I ask that you'd uh, uh, give us the, the word from your from your Bible this morning, that we un- that we can help to us- help us to understand these patterns that we get ourselves into that can be often discouraging. Um, they can become something that uh, trouble us from uh, throughout our lives, and we 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 desire greatly to be uh, improved in our sanctification and to grow in the likeness of Christ, to have the experience of what the Scripture tells us—the reality of being changed from one degree of glory to another—and. Uh, Lord, just pray that uh, you would help us not to grow weary and well-doing, not to grow despairing, but to instead uh, cause our hearts and our minds to reflect on these precious truths of Scripture, these powerful truths of Scripture that uh, are assuring us that the sanctification work is ongoing and the road does have steep inclines and deep valleys from time to time, but uh, you are attending us the whole way. Uh, we thank you for that. We thank you for the time we have in the Word together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So where are we actually in our study? We've been doing a a study on sanctification. We've been examining four major battlegrounds. We've kind of staged this up in four sections over the course of our study. We've covered two, and we're on section three now. Um, These battlegrounds, I've broken these up this way because I think these four major issues within the doctrine of sanctification actually present to us four basic minefields that Christians step into and can get waylaid, and uh, depending on uh, what's being taught, usually from the pulpit or from uh, Bible studies within that denomination. So you have to be careful about what we're doing here. So and ma- these major battlegrounds require us to study carefully these doctrines and these passages of sanctification. So what are those four areas? Well, we looked at the catalyst of sanctification. That is, what is it that, or what commences your sanctification? What begins this process of growth and this progress towards holiness? What, what actually kicks that off? 
Well, some might say it takes a crisis of faith. It takes a, you know, someone just growing so uh, emotionally invested and fervent before God and just yielding themselves afresh and that God does this work in a moment. A second work of God's grace, perhaps, something just as powerful as a new birth takes place, and they call this a subsequent work of God's grace. Different denominations will, cause, will call that either um, uh, a baptism of the Holy Spirit or they'll call it um, a fresh anointing, other entire sanctification. That's the idea of at the moment I, I have that experience, I'm perfected. I made com- I, Not that I can't sin, but I have no desire for sin anymore. God just completely purifies me. I'm almost like living in a glorified state while I'm on this earth. And that's oftentimes uh, an, another distortion of that. So what is the catalyst? What, what kicks it off? Well, we learned in Scripture that the Bible tells us that God has already begun. The larger arc of your sanctification happened even with your, sancti- with your election, back in election. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 tells us that before the foundations of the earth, God uh, chose you to be holy and without blame before him in love. So God began a work of sanctification that eventually sanctif- uh, your salvation and then your subsequent walk with Christ all fit under this larger work of God's purifying of your life. So then it's interesting that you don't actually start your sanctification. God already has. He began the work in you. He says that we're confident of this very thing in Philippians chapter 1. We're confident of this very thing, that he who began the work in us, what's that work? Sanctification. sanctification. He began the work. He will perform it till when? The day of Jesus Christ. Listen, you are book, your life is bookended by a, const, a constant work of God's gracious action in your life, operative in your inner man, purifying you progressively. Not instantly and entirely, but progressively over time. And so that's the catalyst of sanctification. Oh, good. Now I'm going to get an update while I'm trying to teach here. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, the, character, the characterization of sanctification. We talked about that last week, and we kind of whittled it down to three basic. This is a classic outline. So we understand sanctification can be understood as you read your Bible in three, for lack of better terms, three tenses or three times okay there's a way of looking at your sanctification that looks back on it as an event in the past and in the past you were saved from the penalty of your sin right if you drop dead right now you face god even though you did not you're not living a perfectly pure and entirely sanctified life you drop dead right now you stand before god by virtue of the fact that christ's work in your life his justifying act you stand before god blameless and righteous, having the righteousness of Christ, not your own righteousness, but his righteousness, and you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. You do not suffer for your sin, right? Okay, so that is a, that is a defining, defining doctrine for you as you move through this whole understanding of sanctification. In the present, we've been saved from the penalty of our sin in the past, but in the present, as you look at our sanctification, we have been saved from the power of sin, that is, sin does not have to dictate and control you and dominate your decisions and your lifestyle. You have the ability to resist temptation, to flee temptation, to, to fight sin that is present in your life. So you have power to resist the power of sin. If you weren't saved, you wouldn't have that power. You wouldn't have that opportunity. Okay? You can make a small <laughs> inclinations towards resisting, but you are going to be overrun by the power of sin as a, as a lost man. So Christ indwelling your life, the Holy Spirit now indwelling your life, gives you power, supernatural power, miraculous power, power from outside of you to fight sin. Okay, that's assuring. God's not leaving you in this fight alone, right? He's going to give you uh, all the power and all the grace necessary for victory 
in your sanctification. So that's in the present. In the present, we experience a power over sin. And in the future, there's a perfective sanctification. And that's when we are in glory. We are made perfectly, not just spiritually in the inner man, but our outer man matches. And we are glorified. We are perfected in God's glory. So uh, how do I? Ch- so that's the idea of characterization of sanctification. In the past, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, we're saved from the power of sin. And in the future, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. There'll be no sin at all. And we long for that day, don't we? Pastor is going to talk this morning about rejoicing in the future hope of glory. And I hope that you, that, that does just stir your heart and uh, get you um, powerfully motivated to pursue this, this act of God's uh, work in your life. Um, yes, it's God's work, but we are also working. We've said this before. Because God is working sanctification in your life, that's the motivation for us to also work, right? We don't work to be saved, but we work out the salvation that God has given us. So, third question. How do we cultivate sanctification in our lives? How do, by that question, I, I'm just meaning, how do I change? How do I actually go about the process of making sure that these truths are becoming a reality in my life? How do I grow? How do I become sanctified? And then the last uh, portion, a couple weeks from now, we'll talk about the confirmation of your sanctification. So how do you know you're really sanctified? How do you know you're really sanctified? What's the proof? Is it wrong for us to ask for proof? (laughs) I don't think it is. I think scripture tells us we should be looking for evidence of sanctification. Someone, if we make a claim to know Christ, we make a claim that he is now indwelling in our lives, we make a claim to know and have our uh, sins forgiven, there should be some proof of that, right? Okay? There's too many people going around making claims that we know Christ and their lives show no no evidence of that. And uh, Scripture tells us that there should be some uh, undeniable change and undeniable proof of your sanctification. And it's not just that you speak in tongues or that you roll on the floor or you do some other kind of crazy activities. That's not the evidence of your sanctification. Okay, I don't mean to be unkind there. I'm just saying that that, that that kind of stuff gets brought up as confirmation. So what's at stake in this study? Why are we even studying this? Why is it so important? Well, it's because we need to have biblical clarity about this, about each of these four basic areas, if you're going to live a life of true holiness and please Christ. And wouldn't you all agree, the purpose, the sum purpose of your entire life is that you please Christ. That's why you're still here. That's why you live this life. If you don't know how to please Christ... you're aimless. You have no goal. You have no purpose and no no driving impetus to your life. What am I doing here? I want to learn how to please Christ. I want to learn how to live holy in a way that's pleasing to him, to to please my Savior who's uh, spent such a price to purchase my salvation. So that's what's at stake. That's why we're spending time here. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, says that for you were formerly in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, and it produces what? Trying to please, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what your, your goal should be. You live this life not for yourself, not because you're seeking to please yourself, but to please Christ. Okay, I think we're all clear on that. So why is this important? Why is this important? Number, let me give you three things. We try to do this sort of quickly. I'm going to leave that up there, but you might want to take a picture of that because it might be the only time you see that slide because I got in a hurry, and I didn't put this in enough times. Sanctification is important because why? It authenticates your conversion. In other words, how do I know 
that I'm really saved? How do I know for sure that I've actually... What's, what is the means by which I gain assurance? Yes, I understand Scripture tells me these things are true, and I believe it to be true, and that's my primary reason for why I believe I'm saved. But there's also a, another reason. This assures, this authentic, I'm sorry, this authenticates. This is the, this is the certification of why, how you know you're saved. You're sanctified. As you read the Bible, you realize that salvation isn't just a change in your future. It's not just a change of destination where you go to when you die, right? Salvation inaugurates something, entire, uh, a whole new life. A new life is birthed out of your new birth, right? Okay? So salvation, yes? Sure. The first point, I was thinking about that yesterday, is because most people, when you ask them about the salvation, they think they always reference a past experience. Right. They don't examine the salvation by the present and that's that's dangerous. Meaning, they look back and say, "Well, yeah, I'm saved because I was baptized then, or was I made decisions then, and they rest in that." Good point. They don't examine their life in light of the first question. Sanctification authenticates your conversion. So, yeah, what you're present. So that's just, that's a big thing in Christianity that we, we always reference the past. Yeah, we got to have the date, time, and calendar year and that we know. Ultimately, <laughs> Jane, ultimately, ultimately, is that how you begin? When you, when you have someone live their lives in an ungodly fashion 20 years later, you say, well, were they saved? Were they reality? Proof is, is, that's what Paul says, is those who are faithful to the end. Mm-hmm. It's the end of the race, the authentication mm-hmm. of salvation, not how you start out. So, right. Uh, that first point has a lot packed in that one. Excellent. I'm glad you brought that up because that is a key key change in the way we think about salvation. Salvation, we don't just reference a past event, because we don't always remember the past very perfectly, do we? Uh, many Christians can't pinpoint the day, time, and hour, and uh, that troubles them with their assurance. Better we would, better it would be if we would um, look at the present work of God's grace in our life as proof or authentication of our sanctification. Good point. So, so, um, so salvation doesn't just change your future. It changes your present, right? We've got to insist on this. Too much teaching about salvation has just been getting people down an aisle, shake a hand, give a nod to the, the preacher, pray a quick prayer, and boom, we think salvation has happened and occurred. And uh, it may have, but it's not necessarily evident in that instance, okay? And we think that salvation just happened. They changed their, they went from darkness to light. Now they're going to be in heaven when they die. Not realizing salvation starts a new life. You are a new creature in Christ, right? Old things are past, new things have come. So uh, if your salvation isn't powerful enough to change your life now, why do you think it gives you eternal life? Okay, why would you think that? If it doesn't transform your life now, how can it transform your eternal destiny? It doesn't have enough power to do the change here, and now it's not going to change you in the future. So uh, uh, if you... Got what you, if you, what you got when you were saved doesn't affect how you live, how can you be confident that it changed where you will live? That's the question, okay? And the, quite, the, the answer is quite significantly, it doesn't. The, sanctification, the change that you will have in glory and perfection, it starts now. Christ starts to do a cleansing work. You lose a desire to love your sin. You lose a desire to pursue a lifestyle that was like the old man, like the old, old you, and new has come. Not perfectly, and not entirely, but it is indeed new, and it does start. Okay, So if there's no significant change begun in your life, be assured nothing changed in you spiritually. 
you didn't get biblical salvation. And I say that to try to awaken some of us who might think that our salvation uh, was just a past event. We checked the box. We moved on with life. And, uh, you know, there's been no radical change. What about the change? Where is the change? Um, I used to preach a message that said, you can keep the change, okay? It's a change you can keep, okay? Um, it's something that transforms your life. Secondly, it assures your salvation. Sanctification assures your salvation. And I'm not saying it assures you on the basis of you're just working really hard, you're doing all these great deeds, you're feeding the hungry, you're clothing the, the naked, you're uh, helping the people who are in bad way, and you're just working yourself to death, and that's your assurance. That's how you know you're saved. That's not what I'm talking about. That would be confidence in your works, in your fleshly works, the ability for you to produce these things. What I'm talking about is the work of God's grace that you know is there and operating and fueling and motivating your work. I'm, I'm saved because the things that I'm doing, like I'm being in church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying, those are things that never would have been in my flesh to want to do in the least, okay? I never would have desired those things as a lost man. Why do I want those things now? Why can't we get enough of the Bible? Why can't we get enough of church? It's because God has placed a spiritual hunger in us, and that's, an, that's evidence of sanctification. So it's assuring me that those things are God's work and operation in our life. Thirdly, sanctification activates your motivation to please Christ. This is important. And any time, um, like I've been reading a lot of counseling materials, biblical counseling materials that talk about when you get to sanctification, you've got to first, before you talk about the means by which you change or give them a plan for how to change, you've got to first go back and treat the motivations behind their change. What, why do they want to change? You ever given any thought to that? Why is it that you want to change at all? Some people want to change because uh, they're just so tired of the consequences of their sin. Man, I'm just so miserable. I get, I'm tired of you know, being a drunk. It just messes my whole life up. It's ruined all my relationships. And I'm just want, I just want a better life. Now, is it, <laughs> I can understand that, okay? Sin is miserable. But is that motivation enough to get you and keep you towards sanctification, keep you working towards a life that's pleasing to Christ? No, because it is still, a little bit of it is still met, uh, uh, focused on your motivation for you to have a greater, uh, for you to have a better life and not necessarily to bring glory and pleasure to Christ who saved you. So anything less than falling, anything falling short of a Christ-focused motivation is not going to be enough to fuel the, the, the drive to get through the, to, to, to make the change that's needed. You know what I'm trying to say? Boy, that was really clumsy the way I said that. I hope you followed that. Okay? In other words, you're not going to have what it takes. You're not going to have the stamina to get to make the change necessary because you're focused on making your life better rather than pleasing Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. So you've got to have a different motivation. The motivation's got to be God-oriented. It's got to be Christ-motivated, Christ-focused. Okay? So we're looking at the cultivation of sanctification. And we're going to break this down in two pieces. We're going to talk about the motivations for change this week. What motivates you to want to change? And that's so key. Next week, we're going to actually talk about scriptural methods or means by which we change. Scripture talks a lot about the means, but we're not going to get to that today. So what motivates you for the change? How do I pursue and cultivate sanctification in my life? How can I take proper measures to ensure that I'm growing up in Christ? I was thinking about this when we went to Central last week. 
I hope they won't hear this. They probably won't listen to this. So, that there are so many of us, not just there, but everywhere, so many people who grow up in church, but they don't grow up in Christ. How ironic is that, isn't it? You grow up in church your entire experience of, uh, from my waking moments. I can't remember a time when I wasn't sitting in a church pew. I was brought to church in the nursery. And I can't remember a single moment in time when I wasn't in the church culture. And yet the tragedy is so many people are like that, but they never grow up in maturity in Christ. And that's not God's, that's, that's churchianity. That's not Christianity, okay? So you have to understand that there is a major difference. Uh, so how do I actually pursue this change without defaulting back into my own self-righteous and efforts and my own dependence on my flesh? That's where we focus on our motivations. Our motivations for change, and then we'll look at our means for change. These two fronts have been badly understood in the Christian mind, so I want us to kind of clarify that. Motivations for change. We're not simply exhorted in the scriptures to be holy without any other compelling motivation. God doesn't just say, hey, be holy, and expect you to figure out how to, how to get, sum up the, mo- the power to do that or the motivation to get that done. God actually graciously gives you good motivations, and he does that in the text. Let's take our Bibles, go to Romans chapter 6. We're going to end up there in the last portion of our time. And I'm flying like a too fast here, but uh, this is so rich, so so rich, and um, want you to I want you to grasp what we can of this this morning. There's been a lot written in, from a secular perspective about change. Before before I went into ministry, I was a marketing major, and we studied powerful inducements to cause people to change. We want to change their desire for one product to our product. We want, to, we want to ignite in them some discontentment with what they've got and offer them something that they just can't live without. You know, that's the purpose. That's, that's secular, secular people have thought lots about change. Psychology has thought about what, what can we do to flip the switches of the human psyche and cause them to do something that's profitable instead of self-destructive behavior. And a lot of behavior, behaviorism, B.F. Skinner and behaviorism teaching has been about, hey, we just condition them. We just we create little stimuluses. We create little uh, gimmicks and techniques that are going to flip that switch for them. And it's it's we got to convince them of their self interest in that to do something better for themselves. And a lot of uh, popular secular psychology and other secular writings has been focused on manipulating external circumstances, their environments, change the environment, change the conditions of a situation, do whatever it takes to make change desirable. Uh, in fact, everybody has control points. Everybody has these little levers, like their needs and their desires and their values. You just kind of flip these levers, and it kind of controls people, like they're automatons, you know, that can be driven by uh, lower and baser type things. So we talk about Maslow and his hierarchy of needs and some of these other things. If you've had psychology classes, you've heard about that, um, that you leverage these uh, control points to induce people to take a prescribed action. And there's been a lot of spilt ink on how to do this in the secular world. But as you'll see, it's, it's always motivated around self-oriented motivation. Secular approaches to human behavior change, uh, behavior change have become very adept at altering human behavior, but the change has been oriented in the direction of self, hasn't it? Appeal to their sense of satisfaction. You'll be happier if you just do this instead. Self-esteem. Listen, yeah, what you're doing can be completely explained by the fact you just don't have enough self-esteem. You've got to have a 
higher respect for yourself. You owe it to yourself to make this change. You hear this language is just embedded in every advertisement. It's embedded in every cultural message that's thrown at us. Uh, you, uh, you need to have a desire to feel good about oneself. Hey, you need to do a lot of self-care. You know, self-care is important, you know. You've got to take care of yourself. And we hear this language, it's just accepted. It's like the culture is just, just hitting us with a Gatlin gun of this type of messaging. And we're not realizing that all it is is it's pointing us toward a self-motivation for change, right? Um, using these kinds of man-centered motivations, admittedly, you can get certain changes done. Quitting smoking. I, I have family members who quit smoking who aren't, who aren't safe people. How can a lost man quit smoking? Well, some powerful motivation overcame the desire for smoking, so he changed. Getting sober. People go to get sober all the time. They're not saved. People stop self-destructive behaviors. They even rearrange circumstances to create a more comfortable and stable life for their children. In fact, that can be a motivating factor. Hey, I just think my children need a better life, so I, I just gave up the drink. I gave up the partying and the lifestyle that was destructive. And they're motivated by getting their life back on track. All these things seem to have... Be, uh, they're appealing because sometimes they work, at least apparently. People are motivated by their self-interest, their happiness, their desire for life enhancement, and it can affect some change, and that's indisputable. However, banking off the evident success of these techniques, many Christian authors, like the ones I showed you a couple weeks ago, many Christian authors have just taken that same idea, and they've readapted these, their secular techniques into their slick-covered bestsellers, and, they, fail, and they, they just preach to us a form of behavior modification. Pull the lever, you know, flip the switch, whatever it's got to take. Change your focus. Focus on your kids. Focus on having a better life for yourself. Focus on some self-improvement strategy. And that comes to us under the banner of sanctification. And most of us are not distinguishing that there's a massive difference between these two. The problem between this thinly veiled self-improvement message that's making inroads into our churches and preaching is that it misplaces the confidence back into the flesh. That you somehow have a resident power in you, in the flesh, to do these changes. Hey, you have this power. You have the capacity to change. It's up to you to make the change. And the potential for change is within the individual himself. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 tells us that we are not those. We are of the, we are of the circumcision. We are not of the circumcision, he says. We place no confidence in the flesh. Your flesh got you into the trouble to start with. You, it will never get you out of the trouble you're in now. So you walk in the spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh, right? That's Galatians. Galatians, um, no, sorry, that's in Philippians chapter 3. Um, the Holy Spirit is, they say the Holy Spirit's willing to help you, but only so much. You've got to have, you are taking the control here, and you've got to be uh, in charge here. And what they really don't understand is that what they don't understand, what they're presenting is that it is the self which is of central interest. And that becomes the subject of an idolatry. And don't ever under underestimate somebody's willingness to, slave, to slavishly and devotedly worship themselves. And in doing that, they'll, they'll change even to worship themselves. Okay, That's what's happening under the, underneath all of this. I can be whatever ideal me I find most desirable. I can make the change. I'll just grit through it, and make it happen. But this self-focused system of motivation can be bitterly deceptive because you'll never, you'll never reach the ideal version of you. <laughs> and you'll be horribly disappointed when you fail time and time and time again because you're powerless against it. That's why you need God-oriented motivation. God-oriented motivation. 
You'll never be motivated sufficiently or powerfully if you fight sin from the standpoint that it will make your life happier, improved, and less miserable. In fact, your battle with sin actually is going to make your life probably increasingly hard, more painful, and generally less comfortable. That's a surprising thought for people. They, they say, well, I mean, if I choose to be motivated by the biblical motivations, then I'm going to actually be walking into a situation where my life actually might not get better for a while. It's going to actually be a bit more difficult. Yeah, it could be. It probably will be. Because the fight with sin is not a one-and-done type thing. The fight with sin is once you lay a hold of the sword to do battle against your sin, there won't come a time when you get to lay that sword down because you'll have to keep constant vigilance by God's grace. That's the purpose. It's to make us dependent and humbly um, (laughs) dependent upon Christ and the Holy Spirit. The only motivation that keeps you fighting is not your personal pleasure or your happiness or your... because you think it's going to bring some conditions of better happiness in your life, the only motivation that keeps you fighting is laying waste to your sin and bringing glory to Christ so that you'll stand before him exalting your Savior, saying, by your, by your grace, by your sufficient help, I've overcome. Not that it has anything to do with me, but God, you get all the glory for the work you did through me and in my life. So what's the impetus to change? That's the second thing here, and I've only got a few minutes here. Okay. The impetus to change. And this is kind of where I wanted to be anyway. What is, what is the powerfully motivating impetus behind your sanctification? Before Paul commands us to pursue righteousness and sanctification, he gives us a command in Romans chapter 6. He says here in verse, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we? who died to sin, still live in it. Now listen to these motivations here, says. Or do you not know? (laughs) Are you missing some information here? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, if we, have become, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen to the language of confidence and certainty here. Knowing this, that in our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. For he who has died is free from sin. The motivation you have, that the impetus behind this change is not how hard you can work, how, difficult, how, how you can dig down and just marshal up the strength. It's the fact that you are a new creature, unified with the power of Christ. And as Christ defeated sin soundly, I mean, it, it, is, it was destroyed. He destroyed the works of Satan and sin at the cross. And you have been yoked up with him. You're unified with him in Christ. And the power of, the indwell, the power of Christ in the heavens, the glorified Christ now is living inside of you. So you're not fighting this battle, just you. You have all of the access to Christ and his grace, the Holy Spirit powerfully giving you victory, can fight sin. You are unified with him. There's so much in this uh, doctrine of unification with Christ um, is the quintessential example for this kind of motivation. Before, um, he says, well, basically Paul is saying, you can't be sure of what to do when, you're, when temptation faces you until you know who you are. You've got to know who you are in Christ first. Okay? 
when you come up against sin, it's not like sin's going to just steamroll you and, and just knock you out and be, uh, make you into a victim every time it comes along. And you're just powerless, helpless, defenseless. Oh, here comes my sin again. Oh, I have no choice to obey. No, here's the point. You are, a, you are a powerfully unified with a Christ who has destroyed sin. He's, he, and he lives inside of you. You can fight that sin. It does not have to dominate, dominate you anymore. Now, let that be an encouragement to you. That Christ is, is indwelling in you. You are baptized. You are placed into Christ in his death. You are buried with him. And you are raised with him in glorious power. That's the same power that brought Christ out of that grave. That brought him back to life. That walked out of that tomb on that resurrection morning. The same power that defeats death lives in you now to fight your sin. So let that be a reminder to you. When you fight your sin, you're not sitting there... Oh, I have no, I have no resource to fight. I have no, no resistance. No, you do. You just choose not to access it. You're making a choice to not access the the full armory of heaven to fight your sin in Christ. So, when you think about that, I don't want you to get the idea that you can just play victim. This is how people. These are impediments to change. I'm just giving you these real quick. I'm going to explain these next week. Here's what stops Christians from changing. You play the victim. Oh, I just wasn't prepared. I just wasn't ready. This time the sin came and I just was thoughtless. I made a thoughtless mistake. No, you're playing victim. Okay? You've lost your vigilance. You lost your ability to remember these truths that are in Christ, that you're in Christ. You're excusing. You're giving poor excuses to behavior. And when you do that, you are shackling your hands to the dominion of sin, okay? You're accepting defeat. Or you're saying, hey, look, I don't want to be that holier-than-thou guy. And everybody else struggles with sin. And almost everybody in Christianity today is kind of okay with the idea that, wow, we're still sinners. So, you know, it's kind of par for the course, you know. We're just going to accept the status quo. And that's not Scripture's attitude towards this, is it? Or we blame shift. We say, well, the problem wasn't really ours. It's the environment we lived in. Or it's the circumstances of our upbringing. We find other ways to kind of shift blame, like Adam and Eve. In the garden, right? It was the woman. It was the man. It was the snake. Okay? We just throw blame around. We're not owning personal responsibility. Or we just get discouraged by failed attempts and think victory is not even possible. So the problem is, I, I need you to be motivated by the fact that you are unified with Christ. If you know Christ, the power of the resurrected Christ now <laughs> resides in you and gives you powerful, powerful ability to overcome the power of sin. You don't have to be dominated by sin. You yield your members as instruments of God unto righteousness. And you, have, and you can get victory over any sin. There isn't a sin coming against you as a Christian that you can't overcome. Okay, So take heart. If you're beleaguered and losing heart and discouraged here, I want you to be encouraged. Listen, Christ has fully equipped you for the battle. Don't lay down the sword. You have no, that's not an opportunity you can afford to do. Heavenly Father, I just pray this morning that uh, we'll be uh, motivated powerfully to once again fight valiantly, not in our own strength, because we'll be sure to fail, but recognizing that Christ is in us and empowering us and gives us the ability to change. We thank you for that, Lord. So we focus, our motivation is Christ-oriented. We think about him and his resurrection power, the sound defeat he, he laid upon sin, my sin. And, Lord, I don't have to obey the lusts of sin anymore. I don't have to do it. 
But Lord, I pray that you give me the courage to access that grace that's available to us in Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.